All right. Well, with that, let's uh, start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening, for this time together. God, help us to glorify you each and every moment, God, that uh, you bring us before your word. Lord, and that's what I pray tonight, that it'll be your words presented. God, it'll be your message. God, it'll be your spirit that is working on us and, and in us and God comforting us and Lord pushing us more to glorify you. We thank you, Lord, for your love and for your son. Amen. Uh, Pastor Philip Green started with this story that there's an old Russian parable about a hunter who came to a clearing and encountered a bear. And the hunter raised his rifle to shoot when the bear said, wait, what do you want? And then the hunter replied, a fur coat. That sounds reasonable, answered the bear. Well, I want a full stomach, so let's sit down and talk about it. And so they did. They sat down for a while and the bear walked away all by himself. He had his full stomach and in a way, the hunter had his fur coat. You know, and what I mean by that is simply to say this, compromise is not always a good thing. Sometimes it can be very dangerous. It can be destructive. And that is especially true when it comes to spiritual matters. As with the story of my, if you would please turn with me to Genesis 33. Genesis 33. And we're going to learn about how dangerous compromise, or even compromise through the act of silence, how dangerous that can be. So we're going to be working through this tonight. And please remember, this is the Word of God. Genesis 33, starting in verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. So let's pause for a moment. God called Jacob back to Bethel. But Jacob stopped about a day's journey short of where God told him to go. He stopped in Shechem. And you see, uh, Shechem was, it was at the crossroads of trade. It's a place where it would be a good place to have a business. It'd be a good place to make some money. But it was not the place that God told Jacob to go. While Bethel was in the, what we see here then is, Shechem is where there's money. And Bethel was in the middle of the wilderness. And by Jacob's decision, he was uh, choosing then to seek then material prosperity and greater comfort. And besides, Jacob thought it was pretty close to where God wanted Jacob to be. So in Jacob's mind, here's a compromise. Jacob could still worship God at Shechem just as well as he could at Bethel. Or so he thought. Verse 20 says, there he erected an altar and he called it. El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. So here's the thing. Jacob stops short in his obedience to God. But he thinks that by building an altar here, that somehow he's making up for it. Jacob has compromised in his commitment to God. 
He's trying to serve both God and money, thinking that his prayers and spiritual activity can somehow compensate for his lack of obedience. You know, and Christians today do the exact same thing. We try to ride the fence between, okay, obeying God, but also kind of obeying the way of the world, thinking that somehow we're going we're gonna to figure out the trick to this. And somehow that by offering God prayers and acts of faith, that somehow this compensates for some act of disobedience. So one might be, uh, for instance, Scripture tells us that before we go to the altar of the Lord, that we need to make sure that we are right with our brother or sister in Christ. And we might think to ourselves, well, that's really uncomfortable. So maybe what I'll do is instead of trying to make things right with my brother or sister in Christ, I'm just going to give an extra big gift at the altar. Maybe if I tithe twice as much to church, that'll make up for it. You know, and so we start to play these games with ourselves saying, well, I'm going to be disobedient to God. But in my own heart, I'm going to try to make myself feel better by compensating or compromising something that I think is valuable. Yet it is still disobedience. But that will never work. In Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus himself said, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's interesting, uh, uh, in a recent study, we see that trust in the American news media is at an all-time low since... Since the election, with only 46% of Americans indicating that they trust what is reported in the news. Interestingly, that's 50% on the Democrats and 18% on the Republicans. And that's down, actually, from 59% from 2019. And this was from a recent study from January in 2021. And the reason for this is because the media has been uh, distorting news actually for quite some time. In fact, according to uh, Bernard Goldberg, it started in the 1970s. And in his book called Bias, a CBS Insider Expose, How the Media Distorts the News, he recounts a pivotal moment in television news. And in the early 1970s, the CBS president, Dick Salant, told staffers, I have some good news and bad news. He said, the good news is, for the first time in history, CBS News made money last quarter. The bad news is, for the first time in history, CBS made money last quarter. And Goldberg wrote this, he said, Salent knew, everyone knew, if news could actually make money, this suits who ran the networks would expect just that. Sure, they would want quality in theory, but they wanted ratings and money in fact. And in the words of Don Hewitt, creator of 16 Minutes, he said, Before they would say, make us proud, now they tell us, make us money. See, a reporter cannot be faithful to the truth and faithful to making money at the same time. They have to choose which master they will serve. And in the same way in our faith, so must we. We cannot be faithful to one who is the truth, Jesus Christ, and at the same time faithful to pursuing this world's pleasures at the same time. We have to choose which master we will serve. Either we commit ourselves fully to Christ, or we commit ourselves fully to making money. Either we choose to obey the Lord completely, or we choose to enjoy the pleasures of the world. 
but we shouldn't try to do both. It's just like the hunter and the bear at the beginning of this message. You end up being consumed by the sin that you are pursuing. And it only puts you under the stress of pursuing that in the meantime. It's not a good idea for a follower of Christ to send mixed signals, double signals in this world. Compromise increases stress over the long haul. The deception, that hardness tears us apart. So one of the first things we need to take away from what we're seeing here in just this short portion of what's happening with Jacob is we need to be careful. Don't compromise our commitment to Christ. We must not compromise our commitment to Christ. We must choose to obey him completely, choose to be fully committed and not try to cover up our disobedience with acts that just make it look like we care. Otherwise, There's going to be trouble. And we're going to see here, as we go through this story, we're going to see the trouble that's going to cause Jacob and his family and an entire kingdom. So we're going to start in Genesis 34 now, verses 1 through 3. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her. And lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Verse 4. Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. So what we see here is Dinah, Jacob's teenage daughter, wants to make some new friends in her home. Only the thing is, is she's... Somehow she starts to attract the wrong kind of friends, and it's the governor's son. And literally what we see here in the passage is he rapes her, and then he woos her with tender words, and then he tries to win her heart. And Dinah falls in love with essentially a scumbag. And then the bear, the bear in the pictures, we're starting, starting to gobble up Jacob's family. He's beginning to, to tempt and work his way in there. His daughter, struggling, Treated with the greatest level of disrespect and dishonor a person could bestow. And Jacob, how does a father respond? I can tell you how I would respond. I might be a lot like a bear myself in the opposite way. But Jacob, he's passive. He's indecisive. He's quiet. Verse 5, now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his son's were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until he came. Jacob was silent about his daughter's rape. This is going to be Jacob's response. We're going to see this is his response to this whole ordeal. He's going to keep quiet because he's in a, he, he's in a bit of a pickle. He's not sure what to do. The thing is, he's in a place where there is great money. And this is the governor's son, uh, a relationship that could lead to great money. But they're also hurting his family. And then he doesn't do anything about it. That's, this is what compromise does. Compromise often makes us, it can make us indecisive. What seems so black and white for some reason in this instance becomes gray. And then the decisions become hard. Jacob is passive. And in the meantime, when his sons find out, they become passionate in their response. 
I'll be reading verses 6 through 17. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. So the father that found out about this happening went to Jacob to talk about the incident. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The son of Jacob answered Shechem and his father more deceitfully. He answered deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, Then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Where's Jacob's voice in all of this? His sons are taking the lead. And the sons who are taking the lead want revenge. This is not where the father is supposed to be. Not on the sidelines. He is to be in the front Now, in this day and age, the proposal of perhaps a circumcision was not such an unusual request because at times it was seen as an initiation into a marriageable status. It is indeed exactly as they said, that it was to, in in a way to show permission for these two cultures to come together. Verses 18 through 20 says this, Their words pleased Hamor, Hamor's son, Shechem, and the son man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city. Now the gate of the city is actually where all public transactions took place. So this was happening there. Verses 20 through 23. uh, Verses 20 through 23 now. So Hamor and his son came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised and they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. So what we see here is the men of Shechem, through marriage, are hoping to gain access to all of Jacob's wealth. So somehow, through the rape of Jacob's daughter, they're hoping to even further profit from this situation. Just as Jacob 
in his own way, is quiet and secretly hoping to profit in his own way as well. Verse 24, And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to him more, and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city. Verse 25 through 29. So, essentially, all the men at the same time have gone through the practice of circumcision. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob... Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all, the, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Jacob's silence. Because of the father's silence, his sons took the situation into their own hands, and in their anger, they slaughtered an entire city and looted it of its wealth. And then they themselves became murderers and thieves. Verse 30 and 31. Then Jacob said to Simeon the Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, my numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Jacob finally says something. He finally opens his mouth. But it's too late. Because of his silence, we have seen his own children become corrupted. And the culture has infiltrated his family. And now Jacob fears for their very lives. And this is what his compromise has done to the people and their families. It leads to his personal indecision and then indignation. And then it destroys his integrity. It corrupts families and then it breeds fear. When Moses writes this account in the life of Jacob, he is writing it to a generation of Israelites that are getting ready to conquer the land of Canaan. And in essence, he is describing the kind of corruption that even the Canaanites can bring to the people of Israel. And he is warning Israel in his own way not to intermarry with the Canaanites after they enter the land. And then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses is warning God's people to not compromise with the Canaanite culture at all. They're not to intermarry. They're not to form alliances. They're not to corrupt themselves with the Canaanite idolatry and their teachings. But this is also not a warning just for God's people then, but it's also a warning for God's people today. And we need to be careful not to compromise our commitment to the Lord. But then we also need to remember also not to compromise with the godless culture that surrounds us as well. We live in a culture today that tries to dress godlessness as something beautiful. And it becomes tempting. 
And I have seen, you know, many teachers and pastors that I've admired in the past that have slowly given into these teachings because it just, it feels good to belong. It feels good to accept something and then to not receive indignation for it. But then again, when it's against the obedience of God, the price is high, far too high. We need to be careful in our alliances and who we choose to marry, especially those that do not follow Christ. Instead, we need to separate ourselves from the world's attitudes and and actions, yes, unless we find ourselves corrupted by the culture's influences of our day. It's like the bear eating the hunter again. There's very little room for compromise when we have such a corrupt culture. Because we need to be careful to not let it consume us. In 1973, there was a man that attempted to rob a bank in Stockholm, Sweden. But the police trapped the man inside the bank. So he took three female hostages and one male hostage and held them for 131 hours. During that time, he terrorized them, firing his automatic assault weapons and threatening to kill them on numerous occasions. He put nooses around their necks and threatened to hang them, but he didn't harm any of them. And then when he finally surrendered, something unusual happened. Ted Childress, an FBI hostage expert, said, We expected the hostages to be antagonistic towards the hostage taker, but instead they said they feared the police more than the hostage taker. They also said they didn't hate the hostage taker. They even refused to testify against him. And one of the ladies actually became engaged to the hostage taker through all of this. This is where the term Stockholm Syndrome comes from. It describes this phenomenon, first observed in Stockholm, in which a hostage under so much stress begins to transfer their hatred And instead of hating the one who captured them, they begin to hate those who would rescue them. And there's a denial of what is really happening. And the hostage actually begins to develop a love relationship with their captor. It happens years later when Muslim terrorists took over an American embassy in Beirut. After weeks and months of holding American citizens hostage, the terrorists put on a banquet for the hostages in a luxury hotel in the Mediterranean. And then after a while, a number of the hostages began to express sympathy for the terrorists and their viewpoints. Such sympathies can even happen to a sincere follower of Christ. He or she can become sympathetic to a world system which only wants actually to enslave and destroy them. And then they can begin to love one who would enslave them and hate the one who would possibly rescue them, Jesus himself. That's why the Bible warns his followers, warns Christ's followers in 1 John 2, 15-17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's not that God stops loving you. No, it's that we've stopped loving God. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
The world says one more drink won't hurt. One more look at porn won't destroy you or your family. But it will. And Jesus came to rescue us from that. And that's why he died on the cross. He died not only to rescue you from the penalty for your sin, but also me and mine, but also for the power of sin in our life as well. So we must listen and not fall in love with the world which seeks to destroy us. We should be careful, even in the conversations that we have in regards to the world, we need to to be aware. We need to be alert. And we shouldn't compromise when it comes to our faith. For the danger is is the danger is it could consume us or our family. Instead, we need to turn to Christ and let him rescue us from the destruction from the world. D.A. Carson wrote this in his book, Reflections. Excuse me, Idea Carson uh, quoted from Reflections in Christianity Today. He said, we drift towards compromise, and then we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience, and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition, and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control, and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness, and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we must be careful to not let this happen to us. We must be careful not to drift towards compromise. To not compromise in our commitment to the Lord. To not compromise with the godless culture that that continues to grow around us. Otherwise, maybe even become consumed by it. Some people may even say, but what if I'm already consumed by my culture? I've made compromises that have hurt me and my family. What can I do? Well, you can do what God told Jacob to do. Look at Genesis 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, arise and go up to Bethel. Bethel, which means the house of God. He told him to finish what I asked you to do. If you've drifted away from God, God himself calls you to come back to him. And that's what you need to do. Come back to your Lord and Savior and let him rescue you from your sins. N.T. Wright talks about a friend of his who described the reaction when he went home as a young teenager and announced to his mother that he had become a Christian. And then alarmed, she thought he joined some kind of cult. And she told her son, they've brainwashed you, she said. And he was ready with an answer. And he said, if you'd seen what was in my brain, he replied, you realize it needed washing. Of course, he hadn't been brainwashed. In fact, the lights of Jesus had begun to make things clear. The author says, it's our surrounding culture that brainwashes us, persuading us in a thousand subtle ways that present the world is the only one there is. And then a mood is created in which it seems so much easier to go with the flow. That's what happens in brainwashing. What the gospel does is to administer a sharp jolt, to shine a bright light, to kickstart the brain into working properly for the first time. And that's what we need to let Jesus do. If the world has, yes, begun to consume you, 
brainwash you, then let Jesus kickstart our brain into working properly, perhaps even for the first time. Trusting not in the ways of the world or the ways of the culture, but trusting in what God has called us to do in loving obedience. Then we will see. Then we will see truth and God's light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this evening and for this time together. Lord, I just pray, God, that you will help us, Lord, to be uh, discerners of your good and excellent will. God, that in your spirit to see what is good in your eyes and to understand what is evil in your eyes. God, to see what has uh, the possibility of being used for your glory and, Lord, to be weary of the things that can bring destruction. God, that as the church that we look out for one another in truth and love, And in you, Lord, that we may prosper in our spirit and in our soul and our walk with you. God, we love you and we thank you. Amen. God bless. Y'all have a good night.